Our sermon text today comes from Matthew chapter 5, where I'm going to read verses 13 through 20. The Bible says, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For surely I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Join with me, let us pray. Gracious Lord, be with us now as you call us to be salt and light to our generation. Help us to understand what that means. Help us to understand what Christ means when he says he comes to fulfill the law, that we might follow in his footsteps and fulfill the law as well by being salt and light to today. Grant us this, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. May please be seated. Well, last week we began a survey on the Sermon on the Mount with a look at the Beatitudes. At the time, I noted the Beatitudes follow a particular pattern. First, there's a group of eight Beatitudes which form a single unit by how they all adopt the same structure. Blessed are X, for they shall receive Y. But these eight are then followed by a ninth Beatitude, which is set apart and distinguished from the rest. Not only is the ninth Beatitude longer than the rest, most notably, It's in the second person, whereas all the rest, the first eight, are in the third person. As a result, the text goes from, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for for they shall be comforted, etc. All of a sudden saying, blessed are you, when they revile and persecute you, And say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. As I argued last week, the significance of this is that it shows that those who are described in the Beatitudes, those who are blessed, who are called to rejoice in the announcement of the coming 
kingdom of heaven are the multitudes Jesus is addressing in the Sermon on the Mount. In other words, these are the redeemed multitudes. Jesus just got through healing from every sort of disease and malady at the end of chapter 4. Hence, just as God first delivered Israel from bondage in Egypt and then brought them to Sinai to give them his law, so now Jesus, the new and greater Moses, delivers people from oppression and brings them to a mountain to give them his law word. So we come to our text. I want us to keep that context in mind. In particular... I want us to note that the second person address continues in our text. In other words, the persecuted saints directly addressed by Jesus in the ninth beatitude, blessed are you, are the same people he now calls to be salt and light. That's why he says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And what's more, in the Greek, his address is in the second person plural. That doesn't come out in our English, but in Greek, it's second person plural. So what he's actually saying is, y'all are the salt of the earth. Y'all are the light of the world. To my point. Jesus is addressing the persecuted, redeemed multitudes. He is gathered around himself on the mountain and telling them that they collectively, as a people, are called to be salt and light. To put it plainly, what this means is Jesus is forming a new Israel from within Israel to be his church, which is now called to be salt and light by living together as a people to thereby fulfill the vocation previously given collectively to the nation of Israel. What I want us to see today is that since we are a continuation of the people addressed on the mountain and that we participate in the communion of the saints that we confess in the creed, The responsibility to be salt and light to the world now falls on us. As a result, what I want to do today, I want to begin by addressing what these symbols mean exactly. So that we can know what God now, what Jesus now requires of us. To do that, as is always the case, we have to go back to the Old Testament to explore the symbols of salt and light, and the idea of being a city set on a hill, to understand why Jesus chooses these metaphors to describe the church's mission. So, to begin with, I want to talk with you about salt. Okay? You hear, what does it mean to be salt? Under the Old Covenant, God commanded Israel to add salt to every offering at the tabernacle. Leviticus 2.13, for example, says, And every offering of your grain offering you shall season with salt. 
You shall not allow the salt of the covenant of your God to be lacking from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. To understand why this is, we simply need to note that the sacrifices are elsewhere described as food for God. As a result... The addition of salt to sacrifices makes sense because just like with our meals, the addition of salt makes them savory. Notice also that salt on the grain offering is described as the salt of the covenant. What that means is later explained in Numbers 18 when the Lord says he's making a covenant of salt with the priests. And he wants to stress the perpetual nature of the covenant. In other words, in days before refrigeration, salt was used as a preservative. And so the salt of the covenant points to the fact that salt symbolizes the preservation of the covenant agreement. And so when Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, and then he poses the question, but if the salt loses flavor, how shall it be seasoned? I think he intends, we understand that the people to whom he is speaking are now to preserve the covenant calling of Israel. See, God had a covenant of salt with Israel, and now it's with the Israel within Israel that Jesus is addressing. All right? To put it another way, there are some other uses of salt in the Old Testament we don't have time to get into today. But when we remember that Jesus has just congratulated the multitudes to whom he is speaking, because they share in the same fate as the prophets who were persecuted before them, I believe he intends his audience realize that they too now have a divine mission to fulfill the same as the prophets of old did. Namely, to preserve the covenant. Okay? In other words, the prophets, if you recall, came on the scene in Old Testament times to call Israel to repentance and to warn the nation of the consequences for violating their covenant. So in the same way, then, The salt saying affirms that the disciples are now in prophetic secession to the covenant, witnesses of old, who were persecuted and reviled. And since God will not be without a covenant witness to the world, it is now their job to be the perpetual witness to the covenant by living sacrificial lives. Remember the ninth beatitude, okay? They persecuted the prophets before you. Now they're doing that with you, okay? The prophets called Israel back to the covenant. Now that's the job of those to whom Jesus is addressing. There's, there's, there's a lot to unpack there. There's, there's more uses of salt in, in the Bible and everything, but I think more will be plain, made plain in a few moments when we next understand how God's people are also called to be Light to the world. Okay? I want to put salt and light together. Turning to that metaphor, also we have to go back to the Old Testament to understand the reference, which in this case is a little bit easier to grasp. 
Okay? We must recall God had called Israel to be the light of the world and the city set on a hill. As we heard earlier from the prophet Isaiah, Jerusalem in particular was supposed to be the city set on a hill to be a beacon of hope to the world. But unfortunately, by the time we come to the first century, that was not happening. As the rest of Matthew's gospel will show us, instead the holy city and its temple have become a den of thieves. And so Jesus is implicitly warning his followers will, that his followers will soon take over the role of Israel, which I think there's a little hint there, will be trampled underfoot by the Romans in AD 70. Okay? We've seen this already in previous chapters when Jesus began his ministry in Galilee of the Gentiles of all places. There Matthew spoke about how the arrival of Jesus brings light to the northern regions of Zebulun and Naphtali so that it was declared the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light and upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. So Jesus has come on the scene. He's bringing light where he's going, but he's going to, he's going to later send to the Father, and, but he will send his spirit then to light upon us so that the church then becomes the lampstand to the world. So we're called to be salt and we're called to be light. In both cases, Jesus is going to show us how that happens. Here's the first thing I want us to learn today from the first section of our text. In particular, I want us to see that Jesus, as he says in the following verses, has come to fulfill the law and the prophets. Israel had been given the law. Israel had been called to be the light of the world. And God had sent them prophets to call the nation back to the law, back to the covenant. But instead, they persecuted the prophets. As a result, instead of fulfilling the law by being salt and light to the world, God's name, Paul said, was blasphemed among the Gentiles because of Israel. That's why Jesus is now calling the church to do what Israel was supposed to do. More than that, He's leading the way. And what I mean by that is, we've argued from the beginning, Matthew's telling the story of Jesus as the story of Israel retold. Only Jesus is going to succeed where Israel fell. And so what we find by the time we come to the, the end of Matthew's gospel is that Jesus is going to show his followers what it means to be salt when he offers himself up as a pleasing sacrifice to God. And moreover, Jesus will teach his disciples what it means to be the light of the world when at the end of Matthew's gospel, he's going to be set on a hilltop, crucified for all the world to see, to become a beacon of hope and new life for everybody by drawing people to glorify and worship his Father in heaven. And he does this precisely by embodying The way of self-giving love, which was at the heart of the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. That, as we will see, is the sort of 
sort of sacrificial love, Jesus now wants his followers to emulate. To further understand why I say this, we turn now to the second portion of our text contained in verses 17 through 20. These, these, these two sections go together, right? Now, I've already, uh, we, we spent two weeks introducing the Sermon on the Mount before we ever got there, uh, before we ever started surveying it. And I spoke at some length about these verses in our introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. So I'm not going to rehearse all I said there before. I simply want to remind you again that in the verses that follow, Jesus is going to say some things that will, has caused people over the years to believe he's taken issue with the law. And so in anticipation of that misunderstanding, before delving into the topic of the law, Jesus seeks to counter that charge by strenuously asserting he is doing no such thing. On the contrary, he is not come to abrogate the law, but to fulfill the law and the prophets in exacting detail. Moreover, citizenship in his kingdom is based upon and ranked by how well his followers keep the least of his commandments. Okay, Again, we talked about that at length a couple weeks ago, so I'm not going to rehearse all those arguments regarding the way Jesus upholds the law again. Besides, we'll talk more about that when we get, uh, uh, starting next week, when we come to the places where it looks, it appears Jesus could be altering the commandments. Okay, so I don't want to rehearse all that. As a result, what I want to do in the time remaining is address what specifically does Jesus mean when he says he has come to fulfill the law. Because there's a great deal of misunderstanding about this topic that I think needs correcting. And getting what Jesus means by fulfilling the law and the prophets, I think goes a long way to properly help us properly understand what it means for us to keep the law, to be salt and light, so that our righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Okay? What am I talking about? To explain. Often, it's assumed that when Jesus speaks of fulfilling the law, The meaning is merely that he came to obey it perfectly. In other words, Jesus does what the law requires at every point because he had to live a sinless life in order to die on the cross as our substitute. Well, of course, that's true. I want to suggest to you today that is not what Matthew has in mind. When he says Jesus has come to fulfill the law. And the reason I say this is because of how Matthew uses the word fulfill in other places in his gospel. For example, already in his gospel, Matthew has used the word fulfill several times. And he will do so several more times before he's finished. In each instance, he records Jesus doing something, and then he quotes the Old Testament and tells us that what Jesus did fulfills the Old Testament. So that by the time we come to Jesus' statement in verse 17, 
We should already have a good idea of what he means by the word fulfill. What we see is that in each case, when Matthew uses the word fulfill, he's usually talking more particularly about how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament types, shadows, and prophecies than he is how Jesus perfectly keeps the law. Okay, Please understand, Jesus perfectly kept the law. Okay, hope that's not misunderstood. But when Matthew talks about Jesus fulfilling the law, it's usually how Jesus fulfills the, the, the types, the shadows, and prophecies. I say this for one because if you notice, Jesus doesn't just fulfill the law, but also the prophets. So without denying that Jesus perfectly kept God's commandments in exacting detail, we must also see he fulfills the law and the prophets because the things that happened to him fulfill the Old Testament type shadows and prophecies. And I think this is mainly what Jesus means when he says he's come to fulfill the law and the prophets. He's talking about how his own life and work as it is about how his own life and work as the fulfillment is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets in all they looked forward to. The priesthood, the temple, sacrifices, salt of the covenant, lampstand inside the holy place, you name it. Think about this. Earlier we heard how, as a baby, Jesus was taken to Egypt for protection from Herod. And Matthew said this was done, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet Hosea. Then he tells us that when Herod ordered the massacre of the innocents in the region of Bethlehem, then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet concerning Rachel weeping for her children. And finally, when after the death of Herod, Joseph and Mary returned to Jesus' boyhood home in Nazareth, Matthew tells us this also was done, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. In short, over and over, the emphasis is on how Jesus fulfills the types and shadows of the Old Testament law and prophets. Then it is how he perfectly obeys the law. It certainly includes that, of course. Please don't get me wrong. I'm simply saying if we limit fulfilling the law merely to perfect law keeping, We simply will not get the fullness of what Jesus means when he says he's come to fulfill the law and the prophets. Jesus would have us understand he not only keeps the law perfectly, but is in fact the end or goal of the law. He is in fact the embodiment of the law because he is the one that the law always pointed forward to. Now, With that in mind, as we begin to tie everything together and bring things to a close today, the main thing I want you to see is how every time Jesus says that, excuse me, every time Matthew says that Jesus fulfills the law, the event always catches us by surprise. 
In other words, as we just saw, when Matthew says Jesus' flight from Egypt fulfills Hosea 11.1, 1, out of Egypt I have called my son, the surprisingly ironic twist is that Jesus is not fleeing Egypt, but Israel. Moreover, the king who attacks the children is not Pharaoh, but Herod. As a result, Jesus finds safety in Egypt rather than in Israel. And yet Jesus' upside-down exodus, Matthew says, fulfills the prophecy of Hosea. If you were reading Hosea, you wouldn't think, oh, this is about Jesus. Yeah, you read right over it. And Matthew says that fulfills Hosea's prophecy. And what we're going to see in the Sermon on the Mount is that throughout his ministry, Jesus' fulfillments of the law and the prophets will always have this surprising quality to them. And the important thing for us to see is that Jesus now calls his disciples to keep the law in the same way so that their righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. To explain further, when Jesus keeps the law, he does so in a way that goes beyond the law keeping of the scribes and Pharisees. And this is why even though Jesus fulfills all of Israel's hopes, he fulfills all the prophecies, the greater number of the Jews don't recognize that he is doing so because he always does so in such surprising ways. Which explains why he's eventually rejected as the Messiah. To give a few examples, and we'll, we'll, we'll close. For the Jews of Jesus' day, they think the Roman occupation is their greatest threat. So they think if they can just get rid of the Romans, everything's going to be okay. By contrast, Jesus recognizes that the devil and the demons who serve him are a bigger problem. That's why when Jesus comes to deliver Israel, it's principally from their sin rather than the Roman occupation. Because of this, Jesus doesn't show the same hostility to the Romans that many of the Jews do. He doesn't consider Gentiles unclean. He doesn't keep distance from uh, the Jews who served the Romans. As a result, he spends a good deal of time with tax collectors. He eats with them and treats them with compassion. He even welcomes one into his company, into the company of his disciples, the one who wrote this gospel. In addition to this, whereas most of the Jews of Jesus' day believed the evil was out there among the Gentiles, Jesus knows that the real problem that, that Israel has a problem of its own, which is why he focuses attention on Israel's own sins and problems. Particularly, as we'll, we'll see in our, our as we pro- progress in our study of the Sermon on the Mount, one of the, great, one of the great sins of the Jews is to misuse and abuse the law. At bottom, many of the Jews rely more on traditions of interpretation than on the law itself. Meanwhile, they ignore what the law actually says about all sorts of things. Honor to parents, about love for neighbors, doing justice for the poor. The scribes and Pharisees misuse the law further by finding loopholes to do what they want, all the while 
looking like they're paying attention to the details. But in doing so, Jesus says they lose track of the more important teachings of the law. By contrast, Jesus keeps the law with an eye towards the weightier matters of the law, which are justice, mercy, and truth. To my point, Jesus keeps the law with an eye toward being salt and light. In other words, Jesus doesn't simply avoid sinning. Jesus goes further by intervening in the world of sin in order to undo injustice, in order to cut evil at its root, in order to restore right order to God's creation. At the climax, Jesus undoes the injustice of the world. He does righteousness that surpasses the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees by giving his cheek to be slapped, by giving his back to be whipped, by going willingly to the cross. And that is the surprising law-keeping the Jews were unprepared to give. But that is the surprising righteousness of God that Jesus performed, and now he calls on us to do by being salt and light. Summary, Jesus is giving detailed instruction for taking up the cross and following him in such a way that others surprisingly see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, be with us, Lord, as we study your law, that we would uh, not get lost amidst interpretations of men and focus upon um, uh, traditions that fail to see the weightier matters of the law. Help us, Lord, in our day. It is very easy for us to look out at the world and think the problem is out there and not realize that the problem was in the church, that we are called to be salt and light to the world. But the salt has very much lost its savor in our own day. Teach us, therefore, what it means, Lord, to live sacrificially, to be lights to others, and to follow our Lord Jesus and take up our cross daily. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Continue to worship the Lord by bringing forth his tithes and our offerings.